This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Hello and welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And we are here joining you live on Sirius XM Channel 111. And we join you here every Thursday morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. And we are replayed throughout the week. And you can find us on demand on the app or online. I like to listen on the app, though, because, you know, you get out of your car and you might have Sirius XM. But, you know, just... Right on the phone. It's right there. Yep. Big commuter favorite of mine. Exactly. Shout out to my mom who's probably listening and right now. And my parents who are listening. <laughs> and our first guest who's wearing a Boston Red Sox hat and drinking Dunkin' Donuts. I can't, I can't endorse that happy. because I'm a Kansas City Royals fan. <laughs> so, you know. We've well, you know, I mean, we, we, we don't... We're not diametrically opposed. No, of course Boston, not. No. Kansas City. We, unlike uh, my, we can, we can all hate the Yankees. Unlike, <laughs> kind of, yeah. But kind also the NHL, NHL finals are right now, and I actually my first hockey game was going to the Nashville Predators because that's where I went to undergrad, and they are in the finals playing the Penguins. Wow. Now. I think they're great. I think the Preds are great this year, but against the Pens, I'm not. I'm not feeling great. I, about I mean, it. I, I think it's a great story because they were an eighth seed. They're sort of, you know, I think it shows how um, kind of random the NHL playoffs can be. That they 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 were the last of, in in the West to sneak into the playoffs, yeah. and now they're in the finals. Exactly. They are probably going to get smoked by the Penguins. I th- so. that, I that, that, it, I there's know. sort of a more conventional sad end to the story, probably. But <laughs> hey, still, I mean, they've had a Cinderella great, story. They've Who had knows? a great run, and maybe maybe they'll like you know pull like a, a Cleveland Cavaliers or something like that, and we'll yeah. come back on the Penguins. And, and you might be confused because you're like, wait, why is Shane on here? We're talking about sports. Is this Moneyball? But it, it's not. But you can find Shane Jensen um, on Wednesdays at 8 a.m. on Moneyball here on Sirius XM. But we are delighted to have you, Shane. Um, I'm going to give our listeners a little bit more of the rundown of the rest of the show. Um, so I'll come back to Shane. But our next guest after Shane will be Peter Scher, who is the head of corporate responsibility for J.P. Morgan Chase and chairman of the Greater Washington, D.C. region. And, you know, we had him on the show about a year ago, but since 2014, J.P. Morgan Chase has shown an interest to invest and advance the city of Detroit when it committed $100 million to the city. But most recently, the company has been in the headlines for making an additional $50 million pledge because it's going so well. So Peter will be joining us to discuss what went into that decision and how they're determining if this is working. So we may be able to to tie in what we're going to talk to Shane about. Um, and we'll be talking more about corporate responsibility. That's, a, that's an additional theme running through our show today. Uh, At the top of the hour, we'll be speaking with Daniel Korshin, who's an associate professor of marketing at Drexel University just down the street. Um, We'll be talking about the power of a protest. We'll be talking about the the story of a New England grocer. uh, Why New England happening (laughs) on today's today's Um, show? Which is called Market Basket for those for those listeners up in that region. They they may know Market Bas- Basket in that story. There is a fascinating illustration of how protests can lead change. Um, with his recently released case study on the subject, Daniel will join us to share this 2014 story of how customers, suppliers, and employees rallied together to boycott the board's decision to fire the CEO. 
We'll examine what factors led to this firing, why there was such a strong stance against the decision, what made this boycott successful, and ultimately what lessons this story provides for the current discussions of social impact. But I think more specifically, you know, fiduciary duty and what is the role of the CEO and how do you make those decisions when it may affect your shareholder Mm -hmm. and, and the profits that are going back to your shareholders. And our last guest will be Alan Murray, who's the president of Fortune and the chief content officer at Time, Inc., uh, what role does the press play in advancing the dialogue for business to do social good? You know, they came out with a um, a new CEO initiative and a broader theme um, around changing the world mm-hmm. and, and these companies that are changing the world. So we'll be talking to Alan about that. And we'll be exploring how the collaborative effort around the CEO initiative um, is coming from leaders across industries and, what, again, sort of what it means to be a successful business. Is it about the bottom line and who and who's benefiting from from the corporation? So excited to dive into that. But, of course, we have um, a resident expert in statistics, right? Uh, I, I, I like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He's have, gotten Wharton's blessing. So you, we'll you, you'd have to ask, have, ask my colleagues about that. But, yeah, <laughs> I, I guess I'll, I'll call myself a resident expert. Well, I'm, I'm excited because you're, you're an associate professor of statistics here at Wharton. You're also the co-director of Wharton's Ph.D. program, which has to be kind of a feat because, you know, you're, you're training the next U's. Yeah, and I mean, it's, across it's, disciplines. it's 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 a it's a big job, but it's one of the most important things we do here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we are a research institution and we're we're creating knowledge, mm-hmm. which that's a big feat, creating knowledge. <laughs> but um, Shane, what we're actually going to be talking about with you is around urban development and improving the city life. And, you know, with your background in statistics, you know, you have been looking at data from cities now, help us understand what you call urban analytics. Like, what in the world? Yeah, are you I mean, it's, about? <laughs> it, it's it's obviously a, it's kind of a giant umbrella term for a very sort of large and ambitious topic, which is basically how can we use kind of the this new generation of really high resolution data that's kind of become pu- essentially publicly available about cities, and how can we kind of use that to evaluate, you know. How the built environment of a city, how a city is laid out and designed and zoned and all the kind of various decisions that go into city administ- ordinance and, 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 and development, how those kind of factors can contribute to things like – things very concrete things like safety, you know, crime, uh, but also how they can contribute to or encourage more nebulous kind of concepts like vibrancy. So I'm, I'm kind of obsessed personally with this, this kind of – idea of vibrancy you know certain neighborhoods or certain street corners that we walk around in we can we we can sort of see that they're 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 very vibrant there's a lot of human activity um people doing stuff at all hours of the day and of course you know the a lot there's a lot of kind of contemporary urban hypotheses that that kind of vibrancy would helps to discourage crime right Mm -hmm. and so how can we quantify the amount of vibrancy in a particular area or a particular neighborhood or a particular street? And once quantifying that vibrancy, can we actually sort of, you know, evaluate whether or not it actually helps reduce crime? So and that's so, that's kind of like some of the overarching goals of my research. And so I'm thinking about our listeners and they're like, well, what, how is this relevant to me? And I think that a lot of this, you know, they're thinking statistics at eh, tuning out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, city data tuning out. But at the end of the day, I mean – 
these are challenges that are not only faced by a large urban area like Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, my hometown of Emporia, Kansas. They're thinking about population statistics and crime and otherwise. So if you want to give us a call because you have access to someone like Shane Jensen, give us a ring at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And let's start with, you know, we're here at a university. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. What what was the pain point that you saw that you said, you know, researchers, academics, statisticians need to get into this game? Something's being missed or not being fully explored because it is it is being worked on by practitioners and there's not that academic lens on the data. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's uh, certainly I don't. One, one 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 real inspiration for getting into this work is I um had a lot of discussions with kind of a friend who's now obviously a collaborator on this project. Um, she's an architect that works here in the city, and she's you know basically dealing on a daily, weekly basis with kind of, with with developers and development decisions about what what developers want to do with particular city blocks, where they want to kind of put in their next kind of big building, etc. And a lot you know from her observation, a lot of that decision making was again based on very anecdotal sort of you know thoughts about or or or, or um kind of visions about, you know, what development should look like. And there wasn't a lot of empirical work mm-hmm. being done. Yes. People weren't sort of doing a lot of experimentation or kind of testing or even evaluation quantitatively of where crime was occurring, where, you know, particular zoning, you know, you know zoning was mixed versus not mixed, and the kind of consequences of putting in you know, these kind of cookie cutter type developments versus something maybe a little bit more organic in the neighborhood. So those decisions were being made by people going, well, it worked well there. Yeah, or you like, know, that it's sort of like, good. right, the, 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 kind of the giant building with the Applebee's on the street corner mm-hmm. that's worked for us in the past. We'll just keep doing that until it stops work yeah. working. Um, and, you know, I, I, th- I think she was thinking a little bit more long term as well as being somewhat, you know, essentially based on a lot of kind of the contemporary historical theory in in urbanism you know said to her that well you know there's actually a different approach we we can potentially approach these decisions differently but you know what was really lacking essentially is a real kind of quantitative approach you know i mean if you really want to objectively demonstrate something you often you know doing it somewhat quantitatively will help yeah and it eliminates bias when you have individuals making these decisions where they yeah. live matters, how they perceive vibrancy matters. But if you can get some data behind it, you can minimize that bias. Right. And there's obviously a lot of kind of there's there's like, you know, a century of, you know, sort of back and forth as far as like how cities should develop. You know, there's these kind of like very large scale sort of urban renewal type movements that happen a lot in the 50s and 60s to try and like, you know, build, you know, build cities around the automobile, construct like big public works projects, things like the Ben Franklin Parkway here in Philadelphia. Um, And, you know, the sort of pushback against those types of things is, you know, came from like people like Jane Jacobs in the 60s, who who said that, well, actually, no, I think the right way to develop a city is to, you know, focus on the really small scale, develop neighborhoods very organically, focus on kind of the mixing of commercial and residential. Um, and those two things have kind of, you know, go back and forth in, in, in city planning even even this to this day. And what we'd really like to kind of bring to that is like sort of a little bit more data, basically, a little bit more data, a little bit more t- hypothesis testing and stuff like that. And it's only really now, like the last maybe decade or so, where that's really been possible because 
Now I can basically download all the crime data for Philadelphia over the last decade and look at where crimes are being committed, at what time crimes are being committed. I can scrape, you know, Google business data off the web and find out where all the businesses are in the city. So we can start to measure things like the vibrancy of, of, of particular streets based on the number of businesses. So, Shane, I'm, you brought up a couple of points. So here in Philadelphia, which is right now where your, your work is also focused, um, I think rightly so, considering it's your backyard, lots of issues and challenges in urban development as well. I'm thinking of you, you, you mentioned Jane Jacobs, who mm-hmm. has sort of her theory and followers, and I think a resurgence, like in popularity again in the last five or so years. Oh, I, I think it's been, uh, it's been happening even longer than that. I mean, certainly this kind of idea of, of kind of having very local level initiatives, kind of small scale things that are intended to essentially encourage people on the street, people, you know, kind of milling about at all hours of the day, a lot of pedestrian traffic. I mean, for example, a lot of the stuff that Jeanette Sedekhan has done in New York under the Bloomberg administration, you know, if you've been to New York recently, you walk around Times Square or something like that. It's a very different place than it used to be, in part right. because it's become so pedestrianized. Well, and They've it's made a real concerted effort to kind of close off streets and encourage more sort of, you know, hanging out, basically. And in 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 terms of data, you know, I my my husband actually used to work for the Center City District here in mm-hmm. in Philadelphia, which is sort of around urban development yep. in the downtown area. And I'm I was struck by something, you know, there are now cameras and other devices that will track pedestrian traffic. Yeah. So maybe some more accurate than others, but in general it gives you a much more detailed sense of what who, yeah, who and, those and, folks and are milling and around. And that that is kind of the next level of data. I mean, that is the data I would frankly love to have when i talk about you know measuring human activity or i keep calling it vibrancy what i really want to measure is how many people were there in this particular location at this particular time and then i can start trying to correlate that with you know does that you know does a lot of people milling about reduce crime does it actually increase crime you know that 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 data about human activity and 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 pedestrian traffic essentially is data that i would kind of directly love to have um, you know, if I, it's it's a good thing cell phone companies don't just give me this data, but the cell phone companies are the ones that have this the best uh, data on this. Yep. Um, but what we do, what we do as as is, is create sort of try and create sort of proxy variables out of what we do have. Things like how many businesses are in a particular location, when are they open. This type of stuff is essentially publicly available, and we can create essentially kind of proxy variables for vibrancy based on either just how the how the neighborhood is zoned. You know, whether it's zoned mixed commercial residential, whether it's entirely industrial or a park or or vacant. Um, And then we can look at actually where the businesses are located and whether they're open at particular times and kind of guess at the vibrancy of a particular street or intersection based on that. We're speaking with Shane Jensen, who is an associate professor of statistics here at Wharton, and we are speaking about urban analytics and how you're using data and analytics to inform, you know, urban development and city making. If you want to give us a call, give us a ring at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So Shane, researchers like you are getting this data. You're saying uh, with the best data we can possibly get, here's what we're learning and knowing. What are you doing with it? Are you saying, you know, here's here's where we see the opportunity. Now folks come and do this work. Or are you sharing the learnings and saying, you know, for everyone active in the city, here's the information. Do with it what you will. I mean, I certainly were pretty focused. I, I you know, I'm, I'm I'm a relatively classic academic. I'm I'm focused on you know, sort of just trying to discover knowledge and disseminate it. Okay. So I, don't I mean, actually most... believe that. I mean, you're. 
you're a PhD in statistics, but yet you host M- Moneyball on Sirius. I don't know if that's uh, classic academic. Well, right. Yeah, no, that, I know. I guess, yeah, no, that's right. I, I take pride in being a little bit unconventional. But um, but at least in the sense of, you know, kind of, I, I'm, I'm not. I, I'm, Your research methodology. I'm, yeah, I'm very focused approach. on kind of like essentially doing, doing this research just for kind of to discover the, the truth to the extent that a truth exists. And try and disseminate it. I mean, the ways in which that truth could be used is certainly, you know, things like I'm 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 hopeful that we can appraise some of the kind of current, you know, I guess procedures for how neighborhoods are zoned or or or, or designed or laid out, and sort of hopefully learn something from that that can be actually kind of used in intervention sense. You know, mm-hmm. like I mean, I would love for us to sort of be able to discover something like, you know, oh, it, it turns out that really, you know, like mixing commercial versus residential is is, is a real kind of key to like promoting this this concept mm-hmm. of vibrancy, and so we should do more of that in our zoning decisions, etc. So some of the stuff we've done so far is is looking at, you know, within kind of relatively small neighborhood units within Philadelphia and just trying to compare the amount of like, you know, essentially vibrancy, business vibrancy, the location of businesses when they're opening, et cetera, like around high crime versus low crime locations, mm-hmm. like within particular neighborhoods, trying to kind of control for you know, obviously the economic situation as well as the demographic situation, which are are also you know, related to safety. Um, and we found some fairly interesting things. For example, you know, within, if you look in Philadelphia at, you know, kind of within these high versus low crime locations in particular neighborhoods, you find that more crimes do occur near the businesses. You know, businesses, things like obviously theft and burglaries tend to especially occur around businesses, and those are the most numerous types of crimes. But we have kind of found some indication that. Although crimes are occurring near businesses, businesses that are open later, like cafes that are open for longer hours than you mm-hmm. might, you know, the average cafe, mm-hmm. tend to have less crimes occurring around them. So that's kind of some that that's you know that's essentially an intervenable thing, right? I mean, if if you can have sort of your businesses open later, like late night gyms are great for this. As well, yeah. and Sandy, I there's have a feeling you're yeah. gonna yeah. There's a, yep. there's a great story, and we'll, we'll have him back on the air to tell it. Bobby Turner, who's a bit you know alum and a big mm-hmm. uh, impact investing real estate development yeah, guy, definitely said he when he was doing one of his very early early deals, he was up in New York, and I can't remember the block, but it was a very emerging yeah. you know part of the city, high crime and all this stuff. And so he had his vision for what he thought would be really helpful, and he took it in front of like the you know the municipal board, board or, or whatever, yeah. and was going to put in Home Depot. And they said, "Well, you know, we want to we we really have a firm opinion about what time it should be open." And he sort of came back like, you know, business has got to be businesses. Like he you know he wasn't sure what they were going to say. He was afraid they were going to say has to close at an early hour. We don't interrupt the neighborhood. And he you know sort of jumped on that. And they came back and said. Stop. We want it to be a 24-hour Home Depot. We want those lights on all day. We yep. want staff coming and going all day. Um, and so, you know, there really is the impact there. We actually worked with the program here in Philadelphia, the SPARK program. It was a mentor, It's a mentorship mm-hmm. program. Um, so we had seventh-grade students from West Philly come in and work with us. And I think at one time we were working with them on, like, conceptual business models. And I was struck that even at that age, they said, you know, it'd be really cool as if we had a, a sneaker store in our town, of course, you know, like young young boys, that, that's a cool product. But it'd be really cool if it was open really late, because then they would have like all the lights on and people would be there. And then like, I'd be allowed to play later, mm-hmm. because it would be safer. Yep. So even at that age, they were able to perceive when there are big lights, when there's, you know, security cameras, all these different things, you're going to, you know, have that safer ecosystem. Shane, is there anything that surprised you that's been counterintuitive in your findings? 
Um, well, so one kind of interesting thing that popped out um, and it actually has relevance to a lot of really cool experimentation that's going on in Philadelphia right now. Um, so, for example, one of the other things we looked at besides kind of business locations and when they're open, um, it's just kind of like the zoning, like the city of Philadelphia releases all of its, like the zoning for every single lot in the city. And you can kind of, again, look at that, you know, what, how things are. And the zoning says this block is commercial this only. Block this is block commercial is commercial only. This block is residential yeah. only. And that data also has where there's vacancy. And there is a lot of vacancy, mm-hmm. vacant land in Philadelphia. And so one thing that the, one of the first sort of things we looked at, you know, that did not particularly surprise us is if you sort of t- essentially, uh, you know, count the amount of vacant land, the amount of va- vacant area in a particular neighborhood, that's, you know, that is fairly predictive of crime. I mean, area, neighborhoods with a lot of vacant land tend to be high crime neighborhoods. And that's not going to shock anyone because, you know, in our minds, we've always essentially associated a lot of vacancy with, you know, kind of poor health of a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But when you look at a higher resolution within these neighborhoods of where the crimes are actually occurring, they are not – people don't go to vacant lots to commit crimes, as it turns out. The crimes are not necessarily actually occurring around the vacant lots. So at the aggregate level, vacancy is a sign of poor neighborhood health. But if you actually want to predict where crimes are occurring within said unhealthy neighborhood – they tend to not be occurring near those vacant hmm. lots. That's really interesting. We did a, a project in the city of Philadelphia called Fast Forward where we looked at some data. And I think sort of laboring under that mm-hmm. first assumption of, oh, you know, areas with vacant lots of high crime. So let's focus on the lots yes. um, as particular areas of yeah. interest might have been a very sort of misinformed point of view. Well, and it costs a ton of money for our listeners. Yeah, we were floored by how much money it costs to patrol vacant lots, yeah. monitor vacant lots, uh, you know, put new fencing up. It's really so. And, and a group here, like kind of a joint effort between. I mean, I mean, there's people from criminology involved, as well as people uh, over in epidemiology and this and and, uh, and you know biostat over here at Penn. There's a big study that's been going on in Philadelphia over the last few years, where they're basically it's it's a controlled experiment where they're actually greening some mm-hmm. vacant lots. They're, they're, they're sort of turning a subset of vacant lots into parks or, or at least like vertical nice, gardens nice and, space. Yep. And then there's kind of a control set of lots they do, you know, nothing with. And then they are comparing kind of crime around those two. Um, and there's already been kind of pa- really great papers uh, published on, on studying this particular experiment. Um, th- to kind of give a first pass on the findings, they really they, they found that, you know, there was some amount of crime difference, but it, it wouldn't blow you away in terms huh. of, you know, the magnitude of reduction of crime. But there was a ton of they also did surveys of residents around these lot, both control and treatment, you know, both before and after mm-hmm. the greening process. Um, and there was a huge uh, sort of difference in, in kind of the perception of crime. You know, so so residents around these green lots really had a perception that the neighborhood had really improved. It was really getting improved, safer. It was get, you know, now what is what? what and, so and, what? And so, I mean, if you kind of like now take that sort of finding that like actual crime maybe didn't decrease so much, but perception of crime did. And, you know, then you kind of integrate that with what we were discovering where overall levels of vacancy are bad for a neighborhood, mm-hmm. but crimes aren't actually occurring near the, near the neighborhood. It, it kind of makes that that ties mm-hmm. together into a, a fairly cohesive narrative where. Crimes, yeah, you're not going to necessarily directly impact a ton of crimes by greening vacant lots because the 
the crimes in a neighborhood are not necessarily happening, happening right lot, at those yeah. vacant lots. But if you're if you can change the entire perception of the neighborhood, especially mm-hmm. for the residents of that neighborhood, by making things nicer, reducing the amount of total vacancy, that can really have an effect. Interesting. And I'm curious about the business case, you know, with the, the Wharton hat on, my wheels are spinning for like, well, how much does it cost to green a lot? Yeah. Right. How much does it cost to take a vacant lot yeah, and yeah. flip it into a good looking garden? Versus and, how much it costs to manage the decline of a neighborhood. Yeah. And what I love about you know the evolution of data is that you can start to make that business case. It's probably a hard business case to go into a struggling community's you know mayor, board of directors, mm-hmm. zoning committee, whatever, and say we need fifteen grand to turn this lot into a park. I'm reminded yeah. of Parks and Recreation. That's right. You got, you got to I'm going to turn this pit you into a tr- park. You got to turn those pits into parks. Exactly. So, but you know that's a hard business case. But if you can say. This will increase the vibrancy of our community this much. The perception of this community will change in this way. And that could have a X dollar cost savings. Well, and it reminds me of in in our world, something called social impact bonds or pay for success, where you are now saying, like, what's the return on investment versus savings? Mm -hmm. And and that's, I think, a new evolution in city planning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think we can sort of like my own kind of data, you know, I mean, that that greening study was was done a few years ago before I was really working hard on this project myself. But our kind of business data can really help us revisit that particular study because, you know, I and kind of the people that are doing this study sort of believe that it, not all vacant lots are created equal in the sense that, you know, if, if you create a va- uh, green a park, create a new park in the middle of nowhere, maybe that's not going to be as impactful as if there's already a cafe across the street from it or something yep. like that. So now integrating the business data into this particular study, we could maybe actually find even even sort of stronger conclusions that oh, the lot's greened, you know, in, 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 in local areas where there already were some businesses, that actually had a greater effect either on perceived crime, perception of crime or actual crime, you know, because there, there was an even greater sort of like encouragement to congregate at that, at that area. We're here with Shane Jensen, who is an associate professor of statistics here at Wharton, and we're talking about urban analytics. And as we talk about data, Shane, you know, I, I feel like we when we talk about corporate social impact, impact investing, a lot of the themes that we often talk about on the show, like the data are just now emerging, mm-hmm. like re- yeah. high quality data. Where it's are a super you exciting so- time? Yeah, where are you sourcing data? Like, if if I'm a police officer and I'm thinking yeah. about the crime statistics, and um, you know, where am I going for those types of data? So, I mean, so the the number one resource for the type of work that I'm doing is, is Open Data Philly, basically. So it's a, a website that just essentially collects a lot of the data that's publicly available. So. Um, you can link from there to, to the, the crime data comes directly from the police, Philadelphia Police Department. You're literally kind of pulling it off their database. Um, and that's also where, you know, you can pull the zoning data for Philadelphia. The U.S. Census Bureau obviously has a ton of kind of data about demographics and economics. Mm-hmm. And that's where essentially we're, you know, not not only are we leaning on the Census Bureau for the economic data and the demo kind of population count data, but that's also sort of the frame that allows it. What, what I define, I keep talking about these sort of like neighborhoods mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. The Census Bureau essentially defines neighborhoods for us, right? We've, you know, we, we use these census block groups, which are like a collection of like 10 to 20 city blocks. That's what we're sort of defining as our neighborhood. Okay. And that's, you know, to a certain extent, the reason we choose that resolution is that's the kind of highest resolution in which we have things like economic data, things like, you know, median income come for a neighborhood or poverty levels and stuff like that. But a lot of this data goes even higher resolution than that. I mean, obviously, you, we have the essentially the exact locations of all reported crimes. So we could go at like the, you know, one analysis we're 
working on right now is looking directly at the intersection level, like particular street intersections that are, you know, more vibrant or less vibrant than others by our measures. Are they higher or lower crime? And so, okay, if I look at some of the how I might overlay a lot of those data for high resolution, as you mentioned, you know, we talked about what I in my mind, I consider it maybe a more micro example, like vacant lots and greening specific lots. If I go back to a Philadelphia example versus Jane Jacobs, like Ed Bacon, you know, a city planner here who wanted Stop to using names, I don't know, help our <laughs> listeners. Who, who are these folks? He, Ed Bacon was uh, the city planner, I believe, for the city of Philadelphia. He is um, Kevin Bacon's father. No I way. Believe. Yeah. Mm. And so, um, but he one six put, degrees of separate one degree of separation. <laughs> one there. degree for yeah. Gavin Bacon. Yeah. Anyone who's walking around a city. And he wanted to put a highway down South Street yeah, here in Philadelphia, right. right? To connect I ninety five and seventy I seventy six yep. here in Philadelphia. South Street is a historic place that people visit on, you know, when they're visiting Philadelphia, et cetera. But then Jane Jacobs, the Jane Jacobs crowd would have been like, no, absolutely yeah, not. Yeah, so Jane Jacobs even came to the forefront in the 60s for a similar battle. They were going to put a giant high, elevated highway through the West Village. So I'm just um, – yeah, exactly. And, and so how do you take it from like a micro example where like I think crime, business yeah. data, et cetera, makes a ton of sense for the, that because you, you can hone in on that yeah. particular geography versus maybe a more macro or larger scale project like that? Yeah, I mean and it's not easy to kind of make those kind of generalizations based on what we're doing. Uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that continuing to study cities at a high resolution level, I think – personally will personally my my feeling is that will help to illustrate that cities really do change and evolve and function at a very local high resolution level so these kind of grand sort of urban renewal type projects like slamming an entire highway through a city center those kind of large scale projects that displace a ton of people and and you know obviously change the entire fabric of 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 neighborhoods those, you know, we should be very cautious about doing something like that because so much of city life and vibrancy happens at a very local level that you'll just be slamming through, essentially. So um, thank, thank, thanks to the people like Isaiah Zager and some of the Philadelphia residents that kind of, you know, saved us from that highway down South Street. Yeah. And so as we, we wrap up here with our last question, you know, our next guest will be Peter Scher, uh, who is the head of corporate responsibility for J.P. Morgan Chase. And we'll be talking about Detroit, actually, their investments in Detroit. Oh, very fascinating. So that must be a fascinating city to look at right now. Yeah. And so your research. You can stay if you want. <laughs> for the conversation. Your, your research has been in Philadelphia so far. How do you take some of these lessons you might be learning and, you know, listeners from around the country, around the world might be able to use these data and your findings to transfer to other regions. Well, I, I think it's I, I think it's real sort of what what people should be kind of looking for as as they evaluate a city is sort of what are the aspects when you walk around a neighborhood that you really like that you find kind of vibrant and we all define that word differently. What are the aspects of the neighborhood that you really think make it vibrant? You know, is, is it is it straight just kind of population density of people there? Is it how the streets are laid out? Is it is it you know locations of businesses and the fact that they're open late? Um, and every city is does approach this differently. I just got packed from a fact-finding trip to, like, Hong Kong and Tokyo, which are very different cities very from different. American cities. And they accomplish sort of their – I mean, and they have essentially no crime. Um, and they have incredibly high density. And, you know, there's a lot of cultural differences, obviously, between there and here. But there's also a lot of infrastructure differences. And so I was really walking around those cities just trying to observe, like, what about the kind of – either the transit infrastructure or the way the streets are laid out or whatever. What do I think is contributing to this this extreme sort of vibrancy and and – you know, essentially really high safety. 
Well, I, I think Sandy and I could definitely wonk out on, on this topic for a long, long time, but we are going to take a short break. Um, we've been speaking with Shane Jensen, who is an Associate Professor of Statistics here at Wharton, and we've been talking about urban analytics. Stay with us. Our next guest will be Peter Scher, Head of Corporate Responsibility for J.P. Morgan Chase. He's also the Chairman of the Greater Washington, D.C. region. We'll be talking about investment in Detroit, corporate responsibility, um, kind of impact investing in cities. Uh, stick with us. If you want to give us a call, you can call us at one 844 wharton that's one 942 7866 This is Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 